I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, over here. Hey, why do you want to meet at the art museum? Oh, I thought this might be the best place to talk to you about something. Mm-hmm. Great, but I'm hungry. Uh, they got a hot dog cart or something? Uh, no, they don't have a hot dog cart. This is a museum, not Costco. Okay, what do they got, like a deli? Uh, no, there's no deli. Uh, listen, I have something to tell you about our relationship, and I thought being mm-hmm. surrounded by all this beauty might soften the blow. Okay, what about one of those places that serves those little sandwiches with sprouts in them, or like the weird juice pop that nobody drinks, kind of like Ikea, but without the meatballs? <laughs> okay, well, you forget the food. Okay, I just think they'd get more people here if they had some decent okay, food. Look, <laughs> look, look at this painting. Ah, the kitchen maid by Vermeer. Look at her loneliness. See how the interplay of light and dark, the chiaroscuro across her face, all amplify her tortured soul. Can't you see how she desperately wants to leave her situation? How her hungry master won't let her go. Did you just say they have churros here? Were those down by the bathrooms? Because I thought I smelled something. Okay, are you listening at all? I, I'm trying to tell you that I want... To a, get a pizza. A, I know, I'm hungry too. Okay, you're not getting this at all. Um, Look at this Rubens. Rubens, that'd be good. Like corned beef and that sauerkraut. Oh, Aww. Rubens, the painter. Hey, look at this, please. The hermit and the sleeping angel. Uh-huh. See how asleep she is to the mm. fact that she's been carried away to an island by a demon? A demon that looked pretty cute at the club wearing those designer jeans under artificial light, but now that they're together, it's obvious he doesn't care about her needs and only looks at her like she's some sort of happy meal. Well, that is when he's not spilling a chili dog all over himself in front of all of her friends at the mall. Well, I can see they sure are feeding her good. Uh, she is a big woman, and that blanket kind of looks like a piece of prosciutto. Okay, this is, this is useless. Oh, wait. Oh, I know what to do. Here, here, look at this bag of chips. In my purse. Chips? You didn't tell me you had chips. Can I have some of those chips? Wait, wait. Watch. See this chip? See how it's shaped like Michigan? Oh, my God. You want to break up with me? Oh, no way. Yes, finally. Oh, that's what I've been trying to say. Oh, yeah, I see everything all too clear now. How can you do this to me? It's so sudden. It's so unexpected. And I'm so hungry. It's these walls, this light. It's all like one empty stomach full of groaning and... Acid signifying nothing. I can't handle it. It's. It's. Life 
beautiful Friedel Grand Ballroom at the Portland Art Museum in Portland, Oregon. The city where high art meets high fleece content. It's Livewire. And now the woman who orders extra mayonnaise on her sandwich, Courtney Hammeister. Thank you so much, everybody. We are so excited tonight because we are coming to you from the beautiful Portland Art Museum tonight. And we have some very artsy guests to inspire and amuse you. Our resident essayist, Stacey Bolt, is with us tonight with a story from her upcoming memoir, Breeding in Captivity. And for you lovers of not-so-cheap thrills, New York Times best-selling thriller writer Chelsea Kane is here with the fourth book in her heart-sick series, The Night Season. And our musical guest tonight is a man with a voice that will break your heart, but in a really good way. Holcomb Waller is here. But first, please meet the extraordinary members of Faces for Radio Theater, Mr. Tyler Hughes, Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, our beautiful siren of sound, Pat Janowski. And, as usual, poet Scott Poole, author of The Cheap Seats. Now, Scott's going to sit in our audience, and during the course of just a single hour... The amount of time it took Robert Frost to get lost in the woods and be attacked by a squirrel. Scott writes an entire poem that encompasses everything that he's learned during the course of the night. So welcome, Scott, and it's time to get writing. And we can't do any of it without our house band. Please welcome Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. mentioned we are going to have author Chelsea Kane on the show later and with the Heart Six series she has written one of the most popular serial killer series currently in print and I'm not generally a thriller reader because I am a wussy type person but I bought the first book because well uh, believe it or not Chelsea actually wrote for Livewire in our early years and I consider her a friend a sick sick twisted sick friend um, and I remember the first night that I bought the first book in the series, um, my, my mother and I had picked it up at Powell's Books downtown before heading to go to see a play. And she and I sat in the swanky velvet seats and we were waiting for the play to start and I thought we might as well, you know, crack the book open, see what it was like. And I put it between us and we started reading and we were just immediately sucked in. Chelsea wasted no time in this first book. The first couple pages of Heartsick feature this riveting scene from the point of view of cop Archie Sheridan as he realizes that he's been captured by serial killer Gretchen Lowell. And I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that uh, there is a character whose brain does not stay completely inside his skull during that first scene. Pieces of it are not... Not in there. Um, And after reading this passage, my mom and I just looked at each other with hedonistic glee. Awesome, I whispered. And I checked to make sure that she'd finished reading that page before I turned it. And 20 minutes passed, like it was two. And I think we got well into the fourth chapter, but we kept getting slowed down by people who needed to get to their seats because they'd come to see some stupid play or whatever. And uh, the moment the lights went down, I closed the book, and my mother and I turned our attention to the stage with a simultaneous crap muttered under our breath. (laughs) What happened that night was the thrill of Chelsea's story only served to highlight the lack of thrills in A Christmas Carol that night. Uh, Which begs the question, what is it about scary stories that gives us such pleasure? 
Um, I read that researchers in the past thought that we weren't feeling fear but excitement, and so that's what was pleasurable. But there was a study in 2007, Eduardo Andrade and, and Joel Cohen of the Journal of Consumer Research studied people as they watched horror movies and learned that actually these people were experiencing positive and negative emotions simultaneously. Yes, there was pleasure there, but there was also real fear at the exact same time. And Norman Holland of Psychology Today goes one step further and posits that the reason for those positive feelings that are mixed in with the fear is lack of responsibility. Yes, we're afraid, but we don't have to do anything about the fear. We're not the idiot that has to go in the basement to get the rifle because clearly he's never seen a horror film and doesn't know that's the easiest place for a serial killer to hide and sidekick you in the knee on your way down before putting a venomous spider in your mouth. Duh. Not so smart. I heartily agree with his theory as I feel a deep rush of satisfaction and joy each time I am faced with a lack of responsibility. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't even have to be in a horror film. I just enjoy the hell out of not having to do things. I love it. It's one of my favorite things. Yeah. And there are, there are lots more reasons we love scary stories, of course, morbid curiosity, schadenfreude, and of course, the good old-fashioned adrenaline rush, but I'll always love Heartsick, in particular, for giving my mother and me a reason to ditch the second act of A Christmas Carol that night. I'll thank Chelsea later. We'll talk about that. Uh, but, but moving on, actually, because we are at, in this beautiful space in the Portland Art Museum, we wanted to, to talk to a representative from the Art Museum tonight, and we have the museum's development director, so please welcome J.S. May to Livewire. Good evening, and welcome to the Portland Art Museum. You know, we like to think about ourselves as a center for visual arts, film, and culture. And this is definitely culture. Good. I'm, I'm glad that you think so after hearing our first sketch. Um, so I, I wanted to talk, I know that you have a current mission to bring more young people into the museum, and I was wondering what you were doing in order to try to do that. Well, kids are now free, 17 and under, at the museum all the time. That's great. S school tours are free all the time. If you're an enrolled college student, you can buy a $10 annual pass to the museum. Every fourth Friday evening at the museum, or many fourth Fridays, are, are free at the museum. And then we do quarterly museum family Sundays, which are also free. Great. Well, that's, not, that, that's probably, is it, are you seeing a difference already? Um, on, a, on a Friday night, we'll see 12, 1,300 people in three hours. It's the fantastic. galleries are filled. It's a great moment for access. Yeah, yeah. And you have a couple of kind of exciting exhibitions coming up. Did we have talk two about fabulous exhibitions that I wanted to point out. One, this summer, Allure of the Automobile. 16 cars, which are the pinnacle of collectible automobiles, really rolling works of sculpture that will be here June through September. And then in the fall, we are bringing Titian Labella. This is our third in the Portland Masterworks series. And this is an impeccable painting um, worth tens of millions of dollars that re seldom travels that's coming to Portland, and it's something you should see. Wonderful. Well, th those are exciting exhibitions, and we so appreciate the, your, your letting us come here and do our, do our little show. And we're delighted to have you here. <laughs> Thanks so much. You betcha. <laughs> J.S. May.
Our musical guest tonight recently got back from a very successful week at South by Southwest and a performance of Elvis Costello's Juliet Letters with Portland's Fear No Music here in Portland. He's been featured in the New York Times, Paste Magazine, and recently on NPR's All Songs Considered with a song from his recent record, Into the Dark Unknown. Please welcome Holcomb Waller and the Healers to Livewire. Well, 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 
as it just might be The soft curve in your hardest line Well, there's no doubt that you are mine, babe, no There's no doubt that you are mine, babe, no There's no doubt that you are mine, babe, no There's no doubt that you are mine, babe, no There's no doubt that you are mine Beautiful Holcomb. Hmm, thanks. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you, as usual. Um, uh, tonight, later on in the show, you're going to be playing with Matt Sheehy. And it, when I see you play a show, you bring so many other people in, into the shows. You played with Storm Large. Um, you, played the, 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 you played the show with Fear No Music, where you, where you sang from the, the Juliet letters. Mm, yeah. What do these kinds of collaborations do for you creatively? Oh, man, well... I mean, it's music, so it's nothing on your own. I mean, I can do solo shows and I can write on my own, but I love co-writing with Ben Landsberg here. I love arranging for specific players, like my players here in The Healers. Um, and, you know, every time you collaborate with a new musical personality, it brings out new things in yourself, and I learn things. So, you know, I love singing with Storm. I've learned so much performing with her in the symphony because, you know, mm-hmm. I've never performed in front of that many people and, um, you know, same goes for Matt. I mean, his rock band is incredible and it's new. And I just like the idea of our band backing up his band. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just creative and fun. Something I'm not seeing a lot of, but I think we'll see more of it. Yeah. yeah. And just integrating aspects of his band into your sound. Um, well, in this case, more like we like got excited about backing up him. Because, <clears throat> mm-hmm. you know, my band's kind of like a little ensemble. So we're yeah. ready to go. Like a lot of rock bands put strings and horns on their on their uh, on their recordings but then can't do it live but because yeah. they just don't have the players like ready and here we are we're ready mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so just give us the charts yeah yeah I, I wanted to talk briefly about uh you did a you got some attention in the new york times for doing a show in a hotel room at south by southwest yeah what uh, was the sh- impetus for that well the impetus was how the heck do i get these booking agents to hear me <laughs> I don't have a show, but they're all going to be in Austin. And we're talking to them. We've been talking to them for months. And they're like, we want to see you live. So we thought we'll invite them over for Bagels and Locks. <laughs> and, and actually, it was the suggestion of Laura Gibson's manager, who I'm doing a show with June 17th. We've been hanging out a bit. And we're going to do a collaborative show June 17th. And, and her manager said, oh, you should do a brunch at 1130. Like, everyone will come, you know? Yeah. Especially if you're serving breakfast. In the room, yeah. So it turns out everybody came. Yeah, and it's wonderful. If you look at the New York Times <laughs> photograph, there's people sitting all around the floor, yeah. and whoever's singing is on the bed, and a few musicians. Uh, Laura Gibson is, a, is, if you don't know, another local singer-songwriter, beautiful yeah. singer-songwriter. The other performers that, in that, that hotel room were Jenny O and Alessi's Ark. Alessi's from London. Jenny Lou lives in L.A. So mm-hmm. it was a real you know, m- meeting of the urban centers. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, I think Portland is the Berlin of the I-5 corridor. <laughs> And, you know, I think that needs to be represented more globally. And I think it already is, and it's going to continue being. Well, you're going to come back later and sing one more song for us with Matt Sheehy's band, is that right? Matt and Lost Lander, indeed. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you later. Holcomb Waller and the Healers.
Music tonight brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Robust Raisin. Don't let the raisins and cinnamon fool you. This is no namby-pamby breakfast bread. This bread can build a barn in a day and teach your kid to play piano. <laughs> Dave's Killer Bread. Just say no to bread on drugs. Scott? Scotty? This is your dad, hey there. <laughs> Me? Well, I'm as good as can be expected. Say, big guy, I was wondering if you'd like to grab a steak with your old man tonight, huh? <laughs> what do you mean you don't eat steak anymore? <laughs> well, why the hell not? <laughs> well, that's just nuts. That's plain old nuts. Well, I really don't know what to think about this. Well, let me tell you something, kiddo. You are a steak eater. That is what you are. Think I folded sheet metal for 27 years for you not to eat steak? No, sir. No, sir. You eat steak. That is just something we are going to have to agree that you do, okay? Well, well I don't accept your premise. Well, you quit eating steak and you, you might as well be French. You want to be a Frenchman? Huh, Frenchie? I don't either. This is what the Founding Fathers meant in the Constitution. Well, I'll tell you which part of it. All of it. Why do you think the recipe to A1 steak sauce is guarded at the highest levels of government? Oh, everyone knows that. I won't calm down. You don't eat steak. What else don't you do? Walk upright? Are you against being bipedal? Hey, now that's out of line, partner. Oh, this seems crazy to you, huh? Well, refusing to eat a Kansas City ribeye prepared by Roberto at the cattle company sounds just plain loony to this guy. Yeah, well, have you even thought of Roberto? You know, his son has got that gamey leg. What kind of a message does this send to him? Well, that's my point. You're not thinking. It's at college, isn't it? No, I am crapping you negative. That is high on their agenda, turning you into a fruititarian or whatever the in thing is. Mm-hmm. Am I serious? That's a heart attack, young man. Do you, do you still like girls, Scott? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Don't, don't you get me riled. Mm-hmm. No, let's not agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Well, just remember something, my boy. You've got a birth certificate. And it says United States of America on it, damn it. Look, I, I'm sorry. Just let's forget it. You still coming over tomorrow for uh, scattergories? Well, okay. Your Uncle Joe's bringing his famous seven-layer dip. You can still eat that, can't you? All right. See you tomorrow, Scotty. You're listening to Livewire, the radio variety show that would never wear white after Memorial Day, but always wears chocolate after Easter. Coming up, essayist Stacey Bolt, best-selling thriller writer Chelsea Kane, and more from Holcomb Waller. We'll be right back.
You can read our next guest's work in Imbibe Magazine, Portland Monthly, and on her popular blog, These Things Happen. You also might be able to find some drawings of kitties on her kitchen table, along with some stuff that her son did. Uh, She's currently working on a memoir about her struggle to become a parent called Breeding in Captivity. With a chapter from that book in progress, please welcome Stacey Bolt to Livewire. There are hundreds of internet message boards designed for women who are dealing with infertility. And while I'm sure they were all established with the intention of providing support and friendship during a difficult time, I'm also sure that many of the women who frequent these boards are insane. A little less than a year into my quest to have a baby, I started visiting some of these sites because I wanted to talk to people who were going through the same thing I was. What I found reminded me of a sorority rush party I went to in college. I'd heard there were free drinks and I was broke, so I went. As soon as I crossed the faux antebellum threshold, I was set upon by a perky army of Megans and Mollies, all wearing pastel sundresses and coordinating grosgrain hair bows. Standing together, they created a cumulus perfume cloud of Clinique Happy. (laughs) These were not my people, and no amount of free booze was going to change that. (laughs) So it went with the first few message boards I tried. One of the signs that I might have accidentally joined Kappa Alpha Stepford was the fact that almost all of the women on these boards referred to sex while trying to get pregnant as baby dancing. (laughs) And when one woman on the board announced that she would be doing the baby dance with her husband that night, everyone else jumped in and sprinkled virtual baby dust on her. It's important to understand that procreational sex is nothing like recreational sex. People who get pregnant easily or accidentally don't get that. They'd say to me, well, at least you're having fun trying, right? Wrong. (laughs) Sure, in the beginning, it was fun. Honey, we have to have sex. But as the months marched on, we had to have sex. Gone was the spontaneity that made recreational sex so much fun. In its place were stacks of painstakingly precise ovulation charts, and an overriding obsession with egg-white cervical fluid. Don't ask. (laughs) Any semblance of personal dignity was tossed aside like yet another failed pregnancy test. Case in point, I once borrowed a 10-year-old bottle of lube from my (laughs) mother-in-law on Christmas Eve because I was ovulating. Dancing implies joy and fun and happiness. What my husband and I were doing was none of those things. I like to compare our attempts at conceiving a child to the final battle scene in Star Wars. (laughs) He was Luke Skywalker, and I was the Death Star. As he flew his battered X-wing fighter down my narrow trench, he knew he had only one chance to fire his lasers into just the right hole at just the right time. Baby dancing my ass. (laughs) Still, I pressed on, hoping to break through the treacly euphemisms and start a substantive discussion about the realities of infertility. But the baby dusters would have none of it. 
stay positive, they told me, your time will come. That they said this in all caps, followed by at least 12 exclamation points and a wanton disregard for the proper use of an apostrophe, only fueled my resolve to hate them. (laughs) There are only a handful of people in my life for whom I'm willing to cut some grammatical slack. All of them are over 70 and use their computers for the sole purpose of forwarding hyperbolic emails about the American flag. The apostrophically challenged women on these message boards didn't fall into that category, and they definitely were not my people. My people, it turned out, were on another message board. How did I know they were my people? Because they referred to sex while trying to get pregnant as Batan Death March sex. Joining that board introduced me to a refreshingly bitchy group of women who were going through the same thing I was and weren't afraid to talk about it. They had given voice to the issues and feelings that had plagued me since I started trying to get pregnant. Rather than insisting on a perky facade of positivity, they talked honestly about what it was like to live in the peculiar limbo state of infertility. Here's how it works. At the beginning of your cycle, you focus on being optimistic. You hope against hope that this cycle this drug, this procedure, will be the one that works. Because if you don't have any hope, then why put yourself through all this in the first place? So you want to be optimistic, but not too optimistic. Because getting your hopes up only to have them smashed back down again, well, you have to protect yourself. You have to grow armor. So you tell yourself that even though you really hope that this cycle, this drug, this procedure is the one that's going to work, you know deep down inside that it's probably not. So you don't want to get your hopes up. Not too much, anyway. Maybe just a little. Through all of this, my husband Dave did his best to keep me on the right side of sanity. But the poor guy never had a chance. As soon as we started trying to conceive, I saw pregnant women everywhere. And at first, it made me happy, because I thought I'd be one of them soon. I smiled at them knowingly, as if we were both members of the same club. I was just waiting for my admissions paperwork to clear. But as time went on without success, the sight of a pregnant woman felt like an open-handed slap across the face. As the months turned into a year and then two, I lost all resemblance to the woman who'd secretly stockpiled tiny baby socks, thinking they would soon be filled with tiny baby feet. In her place was a bitter, jealous beast woman who was incapable of feeling anything but resentment toward women who had achieved what I couldn't. And Dave never understood that. How could he? It wasn't his body that was failing to do what it was supposed to do. He wasn't entertaining the thought that he was less of a man because he couldn't get me pregnant. I couldn't say the same for myself. Are you insane? Dave asked me one night after I'd said as much out loud. I'd just taken and failed a pregnancy test and was spinning the used stick on our dining room table. You don't honestly think that, do you? Maybe, I said. I knew how stupid it sounded, but it felt true. This baby thing is messing with your head, he said. It's all you think about. It's all you talk about. You're turning into one of those crazy baby ladies you're always bitching about, the ones on the message boards. I looked up from the spinning test stick. And please throw that thing away. It has pee on it. (laughs) I tossed the stick into the wastebasket, and Dave pulled me onto his lap. I'm nothing like them, I mumbled as I rested my head in the warm crook where his shoulder met his neck. And for a second or two, I believed it was true. Thank you. Stacy Bolt.
That was writer Stacy Bolt, and you're listening to Live Wire Radio. If you're in the Portland area, come to our next live taping on April 29th at the Alberta Rose Theater with authors Mike Sachs and Susie Bright, poet Matthew Dickman, storyteller Beth Lissick, and musical guest David Bazan. More information can be found on our website at livewireradio.org. Oh, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I'm going to sleep about a million hours tonight. <laughs> okay, honey, I will set the alarm for one million o'clock. <laughs> oh, very funny. Oh, can you set it for 6.15? We're having a retreat at work. Oh, gross. And speaking of work, did I tell you about the weird dream I had last night? Ugh, no. What? Come on, this is interesting. Okay, what? Okay, so I was at work, right? And? That's it. Uh, that's the, the whole dream. I was at work, so... That is actually kind of weird. I know. It was awful, right? It was like I worked two shifts yesterday. Well, I hope tonight's better. Good night, honey. Sweet dreams. Good night, dear. Uh, did you hear what he said? I knew he would notice that dream sucked. We are totally falling down on this job. Hey, I'm not falling down on the job. My job is character and action. Yours is location. Work again? Snorefest. Hey, you could do anything with it but work. Remember that time you had velociraptors battle the fax machine? Now that was epic. And symbolic. One's a dinosaur, one's figurative. Right. Well, whatever. So let's do this right tonight. I'm going to do that thing where he's in his house, but it's not his house. That old chestnut? Seriously. Fine. Where would you put him? Kanye's house. He just watched Cribs yesterday. Okay, he's in Kanye's house, but it's not exactly Kanye's house. Oh, fine. Should he be naked? No, it's not embarrassing to be naked in Kanye's house. Everybody's naked there. All right, all right. Let's put him in that uh, Austrian folk dancing outfit his mother made for him when he was 11. Uh, hey there, beautiful lady. How's it going? Ew, are you the Ricola guy? I hate lozenges. Uh, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. These aren't my lederhosen. Wait! No way. Excellent. Now he's in the hot tub, but it's filled with tapioca pudding. Oh, that turns into live snakes. My God, snakes! Snakes! Oh! Nice. What does that signify? Oh, they're a symbol of the nurturing earth, and their ability to shed their skin represents transformation. Wow, really? Nah, snakes are just totally badass. Eh. Plus, it'll make him think of his penis. Okay. Now the hot tub breaks away and he glides down a long, dark tube. Oh, with one of the snakes who looks like his grandma. Gammy, is it? I knew you'd get us kicked out of Kanye's house. You're such a tool, Jonathan. Sorry. All right. The tube drops him out in a silicone forest. Oh, wait. You mean silicon forest? Uh, no, it's a forest of trees growing fake breasts. Nice work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Oh, he gets a basket and starts picking the ripest ones. Oh, but the trees take offense. How dare you! Ow! You pig, grow your own! Uh, ow, man, fine, I was gonna bake a pie, but, you know, just get your branches off me, please. Get off! Get off! Get off! Get off! Get off! I'm harvesting! Ugh. Honey, honey, oh. honey, you're having a bad dream. What Wake it? up! What? what? Oh, jeez, that was a weird dream. Well, what happened? Well, I was, uh... No, I mean, there were these, um... What? No, completely lost it. <laughs> it was weird, though, let me tell oh, you. Oh, are you kidding me? What, he remembers the work dream, but this he forgets? Ah, screw you, buddy. Get ready for work, too, Spreadsheet City. Yeah. I am done. I mean, no one appreciates a decent work ethic or a breast forest anymore. You done with us? Uh, yeah, yeah. Nice work, though, Tree. Thanks. 
What a waste. I know, right? Uh, let's go next door and make Mr. Willoughby dream about eating his dog again. Let's do it. Oregon residents will remember Chelsea Kane as the woman who wrote that funny, sweet calendar girl column for years in the Oregonian newspaper. You remember that? Yeah. Well, if you just read those columns, you might not recognize her anymore. Um, in February of 2011, Chelsea released The Night Season, and it's the fourth in her Heart Sick series. Uh, it's a serial killer series, and each of which has been on the New York Times bestseller list and translated into over 20 languages, including Icelandic, Romanian, and Japanese. The New York Times says she churns stomachs with a delicate touch, and Stephen King says she has a ferocious sense of humor. Please welcome Chelsea Kane to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. It's wonderful to have you back. It's nice to be back. (laughs) Yeah. You look lovely tonight. I like your necklace, the shoes. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you very much. You look, I was just saying, you kind of look like a rock star tonight. It's the red corduroys. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to go back to before uh, you start, actually started writing the thrillers. Uh, I read an article that you wrote recently where you talked about how uh, you mentioned that you developed a thirst for violence in birthing class. Can you talk about <laughs> how that happened? Well, I, um, my daughter Eliza is now six, and when I was pregnant with her... Um, we signed up for one of those classes that was sort of taught you how to like have the baby and then keep it alive the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were once a week at Emanuel Hospital every Wednesday night. And my husband and I, um, and we were with liberal arts majors, so we thought we'll take a class, right? Sure. Um, but we showed up every Wednesday night, and it was pretty. The class pretty much was just uh, really um, disturbing childbirth videos. Oh, and they would show these, you know, over and over again, and like where nothing ever went well, you know, <laughs> but you saw everything. <laughs> You're making um, a really large a birth v, canal a with v your is with what your I'm arms. Making. You could see everything, mm-hmm. and um, and these babies would come out, and they'd just be, you know, mewing, poop covered, blood covered. It was very upsetting, and we dropped out. We were childbirth class dropouts. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we just couldn't handle it. Um, But after that, I developed this weird thirst (laughs) for gore. (laughs) Yeah, that's what's really interesting, because you are, it takes so much, it appears, to to upset you or to go too far, I think, for you in terms of gore and and that stuff. Yeah. And yet birthing class is too much. That was it. That did it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, having a baby can be very violent. (laughs) Sure. Hormonally. You know, I was a little bit kind of out of whack, and I, I just went home, and, and I started watching all these thrillers and then reading all these thrillers, and pretty soon I was in my basement writing a thriller. Yeah. Pregnant with my daughter, who was very well-adjusted so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, another thing that you have talked about that you did pr- way before you ever wrote thrillers was that when you would take a walk, say, in Forest Park, you would just... Uh, look around for the best place to hide a body. I've only learned that other people don't do this. No. They don't. I really, yeah. Well, ever since I was a kid. Ever since I was a kid. And I think I grew up in Bellingham, Washington. 
in the 80s when there was the Green River Killer and like Ted Bundy had been caught and the Hillside Stranglers had killed some people up there. And there was just this feeling that there were a lot of serial killers around. And I just always kind of kept my eye out, you know? You never knew when you were going to find a dead body. And also, I think, you never know when you're going to need to dispose of one. Right. This is the part that concerns me. It's good. No, I mean, I don't think I ever will. But if I did, I would hope that I had some ideas of where (laughs) a good dumping ground might be. Well, (laughs) it is funny. They're out there, people. (laughs) Don't. Oh, Chelsea. Um, I, I, so I wanted to talk about The Night Season, mm-hmm. the, which is the fourth book in, in the Gretchen Lowell Heartsick serial killer yeah. series. Um, I found that this was, that you injected humor quite a bit more into this book. <laughs> um, Susan, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Susan, you have a sick mind, Courtney. <laughs> no, well, she was, Susan Ward, who's the female protagonist, mm-hmm. who seems very much like you in, in the book, she was, a, she was a lot funnier in this one. Is, is, was that, why is she getting funnier? Do you think? I think all the books are funny, but I find when I say that, it disturbs people. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one, I, try, I did try to have a little more fun with it, make it a little more overtly funny. And Gretchen Lowell, who's the serial killer who kind of haunts my detective, Archie Sheridan, in the first three books, she is um, kind of off the page through most of the book, which allowed, because yeah. she's sort of the stabby person. Um, so without her, it gave me more opportunity, I think, to indulge in a little more humor. Well, what purpose would you say that humor serves in a thriller as opposed to just in another genre? Well, I think it's, you know, I mean, I find as a, as a fan of thrillers, it's, um, it's just vital to have that moment to kind of catch your breath. Sure. You know? And it's also, um, I mean, it's nice to just kind of punctuate the kind of page-turning terror. Um, and, uh, and it also, you know, lets people kind of relax um, so that you can then scare them again. Right. No, it's good. I, I think that, that uh, I've read some books about how Peter Benchley did that really well uh-huh. in Jaws. And that you can really get them really bad if they have their guard down. Right. That's, that's where you can actually... Right. It's all about audience manipulation. Hmm. Oh. That's good to know. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, you know, uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I find thrillers like... You know, they have to be enjoyable to read. You know, that's the yeah. whole point, is that they're fun to read. And if, they're not, if you don't have fun reading them, then, you know, don't read them. I mean, I, and I want to make my thrillers as fun as possible. And whether that is, um, you know, making them, um, you know, scary and gory in parts or, you know, funny in parts or, you know, sentimental in parts. Um, I try to throw a lot of Portland, you know, in the yeah. books. So there's that for people who live around here. Um, and that, all right, Portland, serial killers, Yay. <laughs> Um, and that is a big draw internationally. Like, the, the books are out in, like, 30 different languages, and one of the things that people always want to talk about um, when I travel out of the country is Portland. You know, people really, they love to read about Portland and yeah. how many people are murdered here. They really love that. <laughs> well, that's what, you have to kill a lot of people in these books, and so it seems like you're constantly having to research new ways to kill people. How do you go about researching new ways to kill people without getting the FBI on you? Google. <laughs> Pretty much. I was just writing today, like, you know, what happens if somebody burns to death? Um, and a lot of really interesting things happen that I won't get into here. Um, but yeah, I mean, but I also, I, I um, uh, you know, definitely, uh, re- I'm, I'm sort of scared to talk on the phone. Like, it was why I was never a very good journalist. Like, I don't even like to order pizza on the phone. I make my husband do it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But so I don't really like to call people and ask, like, so what happens, you know, if a body, you know, is left in a tanning bed too long? Like, you don't just call, like, urban tanning and ask the girl at the desk that. (laughs) That freaks people out when you do that. Um, But you can send an email. Mm -hmm. And then they respond. You know, sometimes they make a call first to the police department or the FBI. (laughs) But eventually they respond with information. So email is very handy. Well, in your... In all of the research that you've done so far, have you discovered the way that you think is very possibly the worst way to die or the way that you would never want to die? Oh, you know, I I mean, I think I kill people in the ways that I find scariest. You know, I think um, drowning is really scary. The last book, um, The Night Season, um, there's a whole, Portland is flooding, um, you know, quite dramatically. And, you know, drowning seems like very scary. And in fact, speaking of, I brought you... A very special gift. Um, it's an emergency rain poncho. Oh, thank you. That's for you. And I brought one for Ralph and one for Jim, too. It looks really stylish. No, it is. It's red. <laughs> it matches my pants. And in a flood, I think this would come in really handy. <laughs> well, well, so you do flood Portland in this book. I do, yeah. And um, the, I have to tell you that there's a couple of drowning scenes, near drowning scenes in this book, and drowning scenes, and they were so incredibly vivid. Did you talk to people who had had near drowning experiences? No, I Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the great things about our confessional age is that people, when they drown, immediately go and blog about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can find a lot of information. But no, I, with the flooding... Um, I had been here in the 96 flood and, you know, sort of took that and uh, just multiplied it by 10. You know, what if the seawall hadn't held? Um, And I'd also been in a flood as a kid when I was 10. Um, There was a terrible flood where we lived and I was actually rescued, you know, by men in a rowboat. Um, so you were, were you in the water? Yeah, we, well, our house flooded and it was, you know, it started coming in under the carpet and then got higher and higher until it was, you know, three feet and uh, our porch washed away. And uh, yeah, people came in a robot, rowboat and you know, been took terrifying us out of there. It was, kid. and so um, you know, I definitely drew on that uh, for you know those pages in the book. Yeah, I mean, it was it was incredibly vivid, you know, for, for, for the reader, a little too a little too vivid in some <laughs> in some spots. Um, and I, I did want, uh, and a lot of people may already know this, but uh, the first book, Heartsick, was actually optioned by January Jones from Mad Men yeah. to make a film. And I think she wants to play Gretchen Lowell, who right. is the, the serial killer. The but, yeah, charismatic, beautiful, yet deadly serial uh-huh. killer. But there's Susan Ward, who's sort of the female protagonist, a journalist, and very much like you. Can you do you have anyone in mind to play that <laughs> Would role? Would you play her? Hmm? Would you play her? No, I don't have uh, blue hair. She has <laughs> different fix that. colored hair in each one of the films, yeah. or each one of the books. Yeah, um, Susan Ward is the, yeah, the quirky features journalist who sort of is the eyes and ears of the reader in the sense that she, she teams up with Archie Sheridan, the detective, and um, everything has to be explained to her as they go. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, like people always ask me who I, who I see in the film, and um, I don't, like, I think other writers, many writers will cast in their head, they'll cast actors. I think it helps them with the voice. Yeah, and I don't do that. And so anybody, you know, anytime anybody mentions some, somebody, I'm like, yeah, they'd be good. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Sure. It's, yeah, I read that you actually write your dialogue first and then fill in all the rest of the... I do. I, so at some point, um, it, I really struggled with how to write fiction because my background is in nonfiction. Uh, and one of the things that really helped me was to write a scene that just the dialogue first, unattributed, you know, just dialogue, and that is it. Because mm-hmm. it would get me through the arc of the scene. 
And then I could go back and I could layer in objects and attribution and, and setting and, you know, description, all of that. Because I think that's where at least I would get stuck is, you know, like the characters sit down and have a margarita and I'm like, you know, what does a margarita taste like again? And then the four margaritas later. <laughs> I've forgotten that you're what writing I'm writing about altogether. Oh, so happens all the time. first. I really recommend that. <laughs> Very helpful. Right. Well, um, and you're starting a new series, right? I am at some point, um, but so not yet. I'm working on book five in the series now. And Gretchen will be back. Gretchen will be back in a big way. All with right. The stabbing. Well, the, this book is, it may be my favorite in the series. I just really enjoyed it. Um, and it was beautifully written and very different from the others. Um, the book is The Night Season by Chelsea Kane. Thanks so much for joining us, Chelsea. Thank you. That was Chelsea Kane, author of The Night Season, who I am in no way terrified of. Sorry, Chelsea. Of whom I am in no way terrified. And you're listening to Livewire Radio. If you're interested in streamlining your digital life, consider subscribing to our podcast and have your computer do all the work for you. Visit our website at livewireradio.org. Holcomb Waller and the Healers here now with guest Matt Sheehy and Lost Lander.
softly kissing the air Down the stairwell The day that he left Her body remembers What a mind will forget I'm afraid of summer Cause you know I can't swim I get lost in the water When the tide rolls in I'm afraid of summer And now, as promised, the man who's been toiling away for the whole hour so that he can teach us what he's learned tonight, please welcome poet Scott Poole. Tonight by Scott Poole. Tonight I learned I'd like to start a museum in my house. I'll put a sign out front that says something vaguely French like Musée Général. That ought to bring in the crowds. Basically, what this means is that I'm just going to put those little white information cards up around the house and leave all my crap exactly where it is and invite strangers in. I like the idea of people strolling about my house with their hands crossed behind their backs in respectful silence. Wouldn't that be nice for once instead of them heading straight for your fridge to grab all your beer? (laughs) Having them stare and judge your stuff is like a beautiful horror novel. It's a rush of positive and negative emotions. You worry about their evil judging thoughts, but it's a real joy to have company and not have to talk to them. With one hand on a chin, I see them leaning in. What is this piece? Hmm. Throne Steak Stain 2001. Steak sauce and Kansas City ribeye meat juice on drywall, three inches by five inches. Hmm. Curator's note. This stain was caused by a forceful arm motion when I wasn't listening to my girlfriend's talk about the post she put on a fertility website about baby dancing, so she ripped the steak off my plate and hooked it at the wall, and I laughed so hard the baked potato shot from my nose. That item also displayed on coffee table behind you. I would just love to hear them say, Interesting. It's reminiscent of Rothko's meat stains, but this has a certain unironic lack of cynicism in its insouciant splatter pattern. 
Think about for once in your life, people would care enough to go beyond the surface, to care enough to hear the stories behind your mess and compare you to the whole history of Western civilization. Wow. (laughs) What's this sculpture say, they would say? Ten-year-old bottle of lube, 2001. (laughs) Gift of the Mother-in-Law Foundation. (laughs) Lube, plastic, and cap. Curator's note, ew. (laughs) I hear someone saying, wow, this is what de Kooning was going for and could never achieve. Wouldn't that be life-affirming? That is until they find the card in the back left of the room, the one with nothing by it. Hmm, what does this say? Best place to hide a body in the yard. 2011, suggested by author Chelsea Kane. Just on other side of this wall, dirt in Arbavide, place where the mailman goes dookie when he thinks nobody is looking. Thank you. Scott Poole. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Stacey Bolt, Chelsea Kane, and Holcomb Waller, and J.S. May from the Portland Art Museum. The Button Shops are Ralph Huntley, Jim Brumberg, and Dave Jorgensen, and Steve Berlin. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Dave's Killer Bread. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners such as you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Thank you to Rose City Sound. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tannenbaum. Our senior producer is Robin Tannenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brumberg. The Faces for Radio Theater are writers Courtney Hommeister, Sean McGrath, and house poet Scott Poole. And performers Tyler Hughes, Trisha Ferguson, and Siren of Sound, Pat Janowski. Our guest writer this week is Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Jeffrey Hilton Simmons. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Matt King. Thanks to Rob Bearden and the entire staff at the Portland Art Museum. Special thanks to Emily Crumpacker. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at livewireradio.org. This is your announcer, Tyler Hughes. And yes, you guessed it. The murderer was Professor Pringle Mary in the rec room with a shake weight. Shake weight. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.